Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Uche Blackstock will join us to discuss legacy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, deep inequalities still exist in the American healthcare system. How does one make their way through them in today's day and age? Well, joining us today to discuss her journey is Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, as well as a former associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and former faculty director for recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at NYU School of Medicine. She received her undergraduate medical degrees from Harvard University making her and her twin sister, Oni, the first black mother-daughter legacies from Harvard Medical School. She has penned the new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, and joins us today to discuss this very fascinating topic for a general audience. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, here's why you decided to put this book together. So the title legacy you know, has a double meaning. It's the legacy that you mentioned of being a second generation black woman physician, which unfortunately in 2024 is still quite rare. So I wanted to really draw that connection. My mother, my sister and I, as you mentioned, the first black mother-daughter legacy from Harvard Medical School, and that was in 2005. And since then, there's only been one more. And so I wanted to talk about you know, what are really the factors for this lack of diversity within the physician workforce. I also wanted to talk about the history that is the history of medical racism that continues to influence the health of Black people today. And so the book is a combination. It's a, it's a memoir, but it also has a lot of history and social commentary in it. And really wanting to help readers, like a general audience, to connect the dots for why we see the racial health inequities that we see today. Like, you know, I'm sure people have heard of the Black maternal mortality crisis. Our Black infants are twice as likely to die in their first year of life than white infants. And so I really wanted to give readers data, information facts, and using my own personal story to help do that. How do you think things have changed from when your mother was physician to how it is now? Is it still lagging? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really wonderful question. My mother, you know, she graduated from medical school in 1976, and she practiced um, in, in central Brooklyn, where actually she grew up and I grew up, in the 80s and 90s. And so she worked at both a public hospital and a state-run hospital, but both were pretty under-resourced. Like, for her, it was really important to return back to her community after leaving Harvard Med to work in service, especially like, taking care of her, her family and neighbors, essentially. And she was really committed to serving the community. And she did make a realization about poor health outcomes of her patients and why that was happening. But I don't know if we were having conversations, you know, within public health or within medicine about what we call the social determinants of health, how health is not just determined by 
the medication someone takes or whether they exercise or not. It really is a matter of other factors like education, employment, transportation, access to green space or healthy foods. And so I think my mother, you know, and she wrote an essay around the time that she passed away where she talks about these inequities um, in the system. And I'm sad to say that we fast forward to 2024, a lot of the data that we see now in terms of racial health inequities, some that I already mentioned, the Black maternal mortality crisis, like those rates, Black maternal mortality are, are worse now than they were in the 80s and early 90s. And that is despite advances in research, innovation, and technology. So I think that she would be probably be incredibly disappointed by where we are right now. She would join me in being a health equity advocate to bring attention to these issues. The state of medical education is about curing the disease, but little attention paid to these social factors that really play into broader health. Yeah, and, and you know, like, I, I, I don't think it should be controversial that how, page, how healthy someone, it really depends on the social and political context in which they live. And so we know that systemic racism is a key driving factor of the social determinants of health. And, you know, I definitely think that in terms of how medical schools are, are educating our future physicians, we need to really give them a broader understanding of what constitutes health as well. But, you know, but the other issue is that I would say overall, like, you know, life expectancy actually for all Americans has decreased over the last few years since the pandemic started, even for white Americans, but worse so for people of color. And I think that when we look at some of the reasons why there is, you know, huge income inequality in this country, there is, you know, there's also systemic racism, you know, a lot of those systemic factors end up influencing health. So we are seeing some of the highest suicide rates. We see high rates of opioid overdose actually been increasing over the last few years. We have the highest chronic disease burden of any high-income country. So even compared to our peer countries, the United States overall is not doing well. So we really need to look at policies at local, state, federal level, even organizational level. How can we make people healthier in, in their communities. And we know that it's not just about what happens inside the exam room or a clinic room with a health professional. Treating the disease and not so much preventing the disease. Yeah, it, it, no, that's such a great point. And I often say it's like when we see disease and illness in people, it really is a downstream outcome of upstream factors. And we, we also know that our public health system really has been underinvested in for such a long time, or even within medicine's idea of preventive health, preventive care. We know primary care physicians are reimbursed like at some of the lowest rates, right? So that's very little incentive for them to, for medical students to go into primary care, or if they do, they often really struggle. But what we really need to do is help prevent people from getting, from becoming sick in the first place. We want to make sure that they're leading healthy lives, they're getting their screenings done so that they don't develop disease and illness. How did the training and then your experience with patients then broaden your outlook in doctors? Yeah, you know, I, I talk in the book my own evolution in terms of my thinking, medical school, learning what I was to learn, but not realizing at the time the, the gaps in what I was learning or the gaps in knowledge, really until I started my residency. So I did uh, an emergency medicine residency training. It's a four-year training where I worked at a public hospital and a state-run hospital, actually the same hospital that my mom used to work at. And it was really caring for the patients there that I saw what I think were the manifestations of these systemic factors. And 
understanding them in a better way. So like, for example, I talk about my patient who had sickle cell disease and because sickle cell disease is racialized as a black disease, it really has not received a lot of funding for research. And so we actually only have like one or two therapeutics for sickle cell disease. And as a result, we actually see patients with sickle cell disease very often in the emergency department when if they had other therapeutics or better systemic care, they would be cared for better and be less likely to utilize the emergency department. But because they do, they end up being stigmatized as people who are seeking pain medications and they're often mistreated. So I talk about these realizations that I made during residency that I wish I had learned about during medical school and that I really hope medical schools are using really the last few years, especially with the, the, you know, the pandemic starting and what we saw with the pandemic exposing the deep fissures that we already have within our healthcare system. There aren't that many black physicians in the country, at least proportionally as, as uh, represented by the population. That prevents medicines from addressing these issues because there's not advocacy of, of individuals saying, hey, look, this is a population that's being overlooked. Right, right. Again, what I talk about in the book, so again, that's like, you know, this goal I had with the book of helping connect the dots for a broad audience to understand why we see the numbers we see today. But I talk about this report called the Flexner Report of 1910 that was actually commissioned by the American Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest organization of physicians and has its own issues, has had its own issues with bias and discrimination against physicians of color. But they and the Carnegie Foundation actually commissioned an education specialist named Abraham Flexner to assess all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to bring them, quote unquote, up to the standards of Johns Hopkins, which was the gold standard at the time. And in doing so, actually led to the closure of five out of seven of the historically black medical schools at the time, which had educated about 1,500 students by that time. But anyway, it was estimated um, in a study that I talk about in the book from 2020 that if those five schools had stayed open, they would have trained between 25,000 and 35,000 black physicians. And I should also say that this person, Abraham Flexner, the education specialist, he was, he was an avid racist. You know, I include some of his writings in my book, but he did not believe, he, he believed black students should be in school with white students as sanitarians to prevent them from getting, white students from getting ill. He held a lot of very racist views, which, may have informed his policies, but the Flexner Report is one of the reasons why we see such a small number of Black physicians today, which I think is a tremendous loss to our community. One, because they could have cared for so many Black patients, but also could have mentored students and trainees and also could have done research in issues affecting Black health. Higher ed is certainly under attack in terms of efforts for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because thinking recently, a few months ago, about the SCOTUS decision on race-conscious admissions and how sometimes, like the Flexner reports, when, the, when, when policies are enacted, you really don't see the ripple effects of them for generations to come. And I think that could be the case with this recent SCOTUS decision. I think that in terms of accepting, you know, black students and students of color, which could lead to a more diverse healthcare workforce. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. But I do think that, you know, medical schools and higher education, they are going to have to be very, you know, innovative in how they're going to, I don't know if it's work around or deal with these 
you know, these decisions that are impacting the diversity of what classrooms look like, what the faculty looks like. We have to work with our own organized and work with our own bright legal minds to address these issues, but they're definitely could have repercussions for generations to come, unfortunately, that if that actually ends up impacting the health of communities. So it's, again, this ripple effect. How do we stress these uh, with what we have right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely am very opinionated. Healthcare is a human right. And I think one of the reasons why we, one of the reasons, not the reason why we see a really difference, a difference in health outcomes in the U.S. compared to other high-income countries is that we're the only country, high-income country, without universal universal health care. So that is one issue. But I do think, you know, what we've seen actually over the last few years is that in states that have expanded Medicaid, you know, people are are more likely to do well, like they're likely to be healthier. So in those states that haven't expanded Medicaid, we really need to be working on the ground to making sure that that they do. So those are some some things that you know we've seen over the last few years that what the data shows what works. So I think that one, obviously, universal health care would be key, but I also think about, you know, workplace protections, paid sick leave, paid, paid family leave. I think all of those policies are things are policies that we really need to consider that make people healthier. Because we saw in the worst parts of the pandemic that actually it was a, it was service workers or low income workers that were more likely to get sick. And that's because they were more likely to be in jobs that put them at exposure interfacing with the public. And then unfortunately they could not take sick leave. So they were at work and spreading it to other people. So anyway, all that to say is we really just need the basics of, of protecting people and making people have healthy lives. Um, I don't think it's like <laughs> rocket science per se, but it's something that I think in this country politically we have grappled with for a very long time. Providing access is very difficult, especially, you know, you you come out of medical school with with a big bill. It's kind of hard to convince a lot of people to go into practice. I mean, do you see ways for physicians to be encouraged to go into these areas and start making differences for those communities? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is is about a collaboration between, you know, academic medical centers, medical schools, even local, state, federal government. I mean, one of the things that I put in the end of the book is that really there needs to be investments in the healthcare and public health workforce. And what that actually looks like is, you know, providing financial assistance or financial incentives to people who go to work in underserved areas, whether they be rural or urban. You know, there are some medical schools recently that have started kind of a no tuition situation where students don't have to pay tuition, so they don't leave with these very large loans that would incentivize them to actually not go not going into a subspecialty practice and instead go into primary care or primary peace. So we definitely need more of an intentional effort from medical schools and with the help of government as well to incentivize our students to kind of do the right thing. Researchers who are, again, they don't focus on some of these overlooked diseases that impact these uh, marginalized communities. Yeah, I want it's not all definitely is increasing the diversity of the healthcare workforce. We want to be able to, we want every patient to be cared for by any physician, right, of any racial background and receive the best care. Like that is the ideal. And so I do think that we really need to think about how we're training and educating our medical students about what is important. You know, a lot of this starts actually even before medical school, like along the pre-med pipeline. 
so there really needs to be accountability within medical schools to addressing health equity in just various parts of not just the curriculum, but in faculty development, because oftentimes the students know more about these issues than the faculty does. So there needs to be an all hands on deck approach in terms of making sure that marginalized communities, those issues don't stay marginalized and that our students feel and appreciate that these issues are just as important as issues that are affecting other communities. You've looked at this for quite some time. How do you feel about it? Are you optimistic about where things are heading? There, you know, yeah, no. I mean, I think overall, I'm a very, I'm an optimistic person, and I know that there's some parts of the book that are really, really heavy. But you know, in the last chapter, I have it's called a way forward, where I address different groups, different organizations, different people. And I say, you know, everyone has a role to play. You know, our academic institutions, our policymakers, our health professionals. And so I really want to leave people with something that's tangible. But the other thing is I want people, that seems so overwhelming. I want people to think about what is happening locally or hyper-locally that you can do to make a difference. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is this, uh, is a birthing center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which Minneapolis has one of the highest rates of racial health inequities. But it's a Black-owned birthing center owned by a midwife, and their goal is to provide dignified and respectful care to Black birthing people. And they've seen really great outcomes in terms of decreasing preterm labor and pregnancy complications. So I really ask that people look at what's happening in your neighborhood or in adjacent neighborhoods, because we also know what happens at a community level has the biggest impact on health and how you can help contribute to making a difference. For people who want to learn more, how they can get involved, or maybe about your work, where do you recommend that they start looking? Oh, sure. So, you know, one of the things when I left academic medicine, I worked on, I founded my own um, health equity consulting firm. We work with healthcare organizations around these issues. And so Advancing Health Equity is the name of it, www.advancinghealthequity.com. But you can also follow me on, I'm on all social media channels with some variation of my name, Uche, U-C-H-E, Blackstock. But I'm the only Uche Blackstock, so you'll be able to find me. And definitely, I encourage people to read the book because Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine, because I truly wrote it for a broad audience. I, I think anyone can learn something from this book, and I hopefully will galvanize them to make a difference. We were talking with Dr. Uche Blackstock, her new book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.